Thank you for tuning in. Today's conversation is the latest of several we've had here on the podcast related to the future of work. And more specifically, how as leaders, we need to be more aware of the major changes happening in real time while being thoughtful, strategic, and flexible in terms of our overall operations and business models in order to better position our firms to succeed moving forward. Our guest today on the podcast is Austin Church. He's an independent professional freelance business coach, entrepreneur, and brand expert. And he walks us through how we can succeed individually as independent professional freelancers and how we as organizations can best position ourselves to succeed with this growing trend, which is only showing signs of acceleration. Also, take note of the fact that what's needed to succeed as an independent professional freelancer is not much different from what it takes to succeed in business overall, but with potentially a much bigger upside. And how what we need to be doing today organizationally to succeed post-pandemic are the exact same things we need to be doing to succeed in a world with independent professional freelancers. And in how making the right investments in better processes and systems today to make us more efficient, effective, and competitive is in many ways a two-for-one investment in our future success, no matter how much we choose to initially wade into the world of professional freelancing. So without any further delay, let's do it. Welcome to AEC Leadership Today, the podcast designed exclusively for engineering, architecture, and construction industry leaders who want to stay relevant and effective. The show takes on the most pressing issues facing the AEC industry and was created to help you and your firm grow and prosper in the 21st century. The host of AEC Leadership Today is Pete Atherton, a professional engineer and former AEC principal and owner turned AEC coach and consultant. And now, take a break from your never-ending to-do list and welcome Peter Atherton. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another great episode of AEC Leadership Today. Today, we'll be speaking with Austin Church, founder and CEO of Belernum. And we'll be talking about the world of independent professional freelancing. Welcome to the podcast, Austin. Thanks, Peter. I'm excited to be here. Great. Well, I'm excited that you're here too. Um, you are a independent professional freelance business coach, entrepreneur, and brand expert. As we begin here, can you share a little bit about your background and how you got into becoming an independent professional freelance business coach? Sure. So I never wanted to be in business ever. I thought I was going to be a college English professor and I started dutifully racking up the requisite degrees. And then by the time I was finishing up my master's, I was totally burned out with academia, still had a penchant for tweed jackets and pipes, but I just could not do that context anymore. So I got a job at a marketing agency and got laid off six months later. That was, at the time it was called the Great Recession. That was 2009. I don't know if we're calling it that anymore, right? I hear it, it referenced that recession, way all the time. Right. right, it was a recession. But so there I was with six months of experience, still very green, very... Um, insecure. I mean, you could fill a thousand dump trucks with everything I did not know about marketing 
in business because I'd never had a marketing or business course. It was all humanities all the way, but suddenly found myself unemployed in April, 2009. And the rest is history. I ended up making a lot more money even that first year as a freelancer than I would have made if I had kept my salary position at the agency. And as my income went up, my belief in the validity or viability of freelancing as not just uh, a sort of track off to the side, a detour, but as a real career trajectory, my belief in that deepened and I've been freelancing ever since. So over 12 years now. And then how, as your career progressed, I mean, what got you into, and I suspect that, you know, as any career, it's not always up and to the right all the time. You know, how did you transition into not only being successful as as an independent professional freelancer yourself, but how did you get into coaching others in how to be successful in that arena? Great question. I didn't know early on, but I have the language now. I was always pattern matching. So I was really good at making mistakes, right? That's what being an amateur at something does for you. You're really good at making mistakes. You stumble and you fall and you pick yourself up and you knock the dirt off your knees and you're like, all right, um, that was painful. How did that happen? And so I would fall and pick myself up and say, okay, I did some spec work. I did some free work for that client on their promise that if I did some free work, then they would then give me a paying gig. And lo and behold, they never gave me the paying gig. So maybe the clients who dangle the carrot are ones to be avoided. So those are like the little lessons you pick up along the way. So as I accumulated more and more of those lessons, and as I matched more and more patterns, meaning later on down the road, meet another person who might stroke my ego with a few compliments, say how talented I was. And, oh, and by the way, would you, would you um, work on this project for us for free just to show us what you can do? Oh, wow, this is exactly like that same situation three years ago. I just started to make these connections, sort of come up with a library of these patterns and over time, I realized that I had a knack for noticing what worked and what didn't work. And then I did have a background in teaching. So teaching made a, a neat transition into coaching. And after a while, I just started helping other freelancers, other creatives, other professionals learn from my mistakes and I found that a lot of those lessons were really durable, meaning that they poured it over well to different industries, to different niches and specializations. Um, you know, one example of that would be people everywhere tend to show more respect to things that are more expensive. So I found that every time I raised my rates, I got a, a corresponding higher amount of respect from clients. And sure enough, whether it was a writer or a designer or a strategist or a coder or even 
you know, as in your case, architects and engineers, you have these people with significant skill. Well, when they raise their rates, they tend to attract better clients and get more respect. So that's how I got into coaching. I just started sharing all of my mistakes and other people benefited from the wisdom that I gleaned from those mistakes. Right. Well, and some of those rules uh, apply to firms and organizations too, you know, when they value price th their work. I, I did want to break our discussion today into two parts. One, the first part to really talk about how to have success individually um, as an independent professional freelancer. And then uh, the second part, really talking about how professional services firms today, and, and in this case, you know, talking about, you know, engineering and architecture firms, how they can better prepare to make the most of this growing trend. And so in that context, I mean, what, from your perspective, um, you know, work with in, in the industry, the, the broader industry at overall of independent professional freelancers in your own experience, what are the benefits of becoming an independent professional freelancer? I already mentioned one of them, which is the financial upside. I have been able to make more than I realistically could have made if I had stayed someone else's W-2 employee full-time. Beyond that, freedom, flexibility, I can work from anywhere. So there's a location independence component or facet that I really like. Autonomy, you know, when you work at a firm or in my case at an agency, you really can't pick your coworkers. You have very limited control over who you end up on a team with. Well, as I have grown over the years and take, taken on bigger projects and even had more leadership responsibility with projects, I get to pick the other people on the team. And even as I have niched down and specialized more and become more selective with the clients I take on, I've even had more control over who my clients are, what their values are, um, even to some degree, the things that I'm asked to do. I remember early on certain clients saying, yeah, okay, so we need some copy and content. We need some writing for this web page. And I would say, okay, so what are you trying to say? Like, what's the goal on this web page? And it was just, it would make my skin crawl in a way when a client would say, you know, just fluff it up. Like just, we just need like 300 words. And I'm like, but you're not saying anything. And so being asked to more or less create cotton candy, like there's no nutrition there. There was nothing that there's nothing of substance there. I don't like shilling my skills on behalf of someone else's cotton candy needs it's and that's not even me being like the artiste and being a diva or anything like that it's that work just isn't satisfying and so that's another thing that's tied into autonomy is the freedom to pursue the work that I find most satisfying most rewarding and um maybe tied into that is playing to my strengths more often I think in a firm or an agency setting, you're always kind of a utility player. I guess it depends on the size of the firm, right? The bigger the firm, maybe the more specialized you can be. But I worked at a small agency. And so on any given week, I might be asked to do five to 10 different things. And some of those things I was good at, some 
let, let's say some of those things I was an A plus at, some of those things I might be a B minus at, I was still better than the next best person though. So the, that felt to me, well, over time, I've been able to just spend more and more of my time on the work and the projects where I believe I deliver the most value. And man, that's, that's a better way to spend a life, I think, than the alternate, which I call being cursed by your competence, where if, like I said, if you're better than the next best person, you'll end up saddled with responsibilities that you don't particularly enjoy. They just have to be done. And so, yeah, I just, I find most days I really, really look forward to the work that I'm about to do. And in, in that sense, if, if somebody were, you know, we're right now a, a very competent, uh, high achieving, you know, W2 employee, and they were, you know, everything you just said about the benefits of becoming an independent professional freelancer, what are, when someone gets into that arena, arena, what are some of the hurdles that, that you see either perceived or actual hurdles um, that the freelancers face today? And, and, and have they changed over the last, you know, couple of years or, you know, since COVID or, or, or as this, as, a, you know, initially from say even 10 years ago to today, is there a changing or is, are, are these, you know, hurdles pretty much still the same? I think the hurdles are the same and I'll, I'll name some of them. I do think the support system has become more sophisticated. I think there are more resources and tools available now than were available in 2009 when I first got started. But like I said, I think the hurdles, a lot of them are still around and they're just inherent to the nature of being a small business owner. When you go from working at a firm, being embedded in a firm, so to speak, you don't have to do a lot of the admin because that's somebody else's job. You probably don't have to do a lot of the sales and business development because the, you know, the managing partner or the principals at the firm will be responsible for uh, landing new projects, bringing those in. And so to some degree, you are a technician, you are a, a craftsman or craftswoman. You get to show up and if you're an architect, you get to do architecture, right? If you're an engineer, then you get to do the engineering. Well, when you transition to being an independent freelance professional, now you get to do bookkeeping. Now you get to go to meetings, you get to pitch, you get to sell, you get to put together proposals, you get to send master service agreements. And I don't, I don't want to frame all that stuff as being really onerous. I mean, it can be, but it can also be pretty cool to be doing it on your own, really doing it, right? And I still think on the, the scale, the balance tips in favor of being independent, right? But I think, I think all of the other hats that you have to wear and responsibilities can take newish or new freelancers by surprise because you just didn't realize um, how much time goes into closing a deal. You may never have known that before, right? Um, you may never have had to create a system for keeping in touch with a lead. And depending on the size of the project, the, um, the sales cycle might be 
12 months, 18 months. Like I just closed a deal on Monday that I have been nurturing since February of last year. So we're 15 months in and I have a system that enables me, reminds me, I should say, it's like a second brain. It, it jogs my memory, helps me follow up 15 months later, right? If I had never followed up, wouldn't have gotten the deal, but I didn't know any of that in April, 2009. And that was a huge hurdle, right? Because you assume when you're new, oh, if they need anything from me, they'll get in touch. Well, that assumes they even, they, that assumes they've even thought about you in months and they probably haven't. So uh, again, to come full circle, I think the hurdles are the same, but we have many more tools and resources now to do this well, to, to be really effective small business owners, I think. Right, well, and even in professional services in general, I mean, that sales cycle can be three months to three years yeah. or, or more yeah. in, in, in general, let, let alone even on a you know individual small business perspective. How do you think about or how do you see risk as it relates to both being a W-2 employee, which, you know, the framework sometimes is, oh, a permanent employee um, versus, you know, kind of going out on your own, you know, how do you, how do you see people assessing the risk factor, mm -hmm. uh, you know, particularly in the context of we are on our own, there is a sales cycle. Um, how do you think about risk? So, I think 2020 changed how I think about risk. Now, I was already on this path. I already had an, a very agile business model. So I can scale up or scale back based on client needs, right? But I think the idea has always been that a full-time W-2 position is less, is less risky, right? Now, just bookmark that for a second. We know that with assets and with like a financial portfolio, that to have all of your net worth tied up in one asset is highly risky. And yet that's exactly what we do with a full-time W-2 position. Your entire income is tied up in a single opportunity. And so I think there's more risk to being someone else's W-2 employee than there is in a diversified portfolio, so to speak, of projects and clients. Yeah, maybe you'll lose a client from time to time. You'll wrap up a project. And even if they're happy, that doesn't mean they have another project for you right away. You'll see some ups and downs, but being a professional freelancer or a freelance professional, right? You're actually more diversified. And I think, yes, you have to acquire a whole different skill set because business building is one skill set. Being an architect or an engineer, or in my case, a brand strategist and a copywriter, we have a different skill set to do those things. Building a business means acquiring a new skill set. I still think that. Um, there's less risk long-term in acquiring that business building skill set, marrying that up with your hard marketable skills and having a more diversified work portfolio. I just see that as a less risky proposition overall. 
And, and even some of the language, I mean, well, thank you for that. I mean, some of the language we use in business is sort of antiquated. I mean, there is no, with employee at will, um, there's never a permanent, you know, we never have a permanent employee, right? So almost like it's just, it, the language is, is poor because mm-hmm. up until the employee wants to leave or up until the firm doesn't want the employee, you know, it's a relationship. And so anyway, there's a sort of longer, you know, dialogue of, of we just use language that that isn't you know, really accurate. How, I mean, we mentioned skill sets and, and as a professional freelancer um, or really just being good at your craft, you've got to be, um, you've got to have skills. You've got to be able to perform well. Um, in addition to having that sort of technical skill set, if you will, what are, or maybe just affirm that you truly have to have a, a technical skill set and be good at something. Um, what are some of those, you know, other skill sets? We mentioned some of the business acumen, but is there anything else we haven't talked about that these are some skill sets that you need to really succeed as a professional independent freelancer? And then what about mindset? How do you think about mm-hmm. mindset? I was mindset is what I was going to talk about, because like when I think about the full spectrum of skills that we need, the ones that I think truly separate someone who just does okay as an independent versus someone who truly thrives, it's normally soft skills, not hard skills. Like, and yes, with engineering and with architecture, the qualitative difference between a really good architect and only a so-so architect can probably be felt by the client, right? And that's different maybe than in some of, like some of the other skill sets like copywriting where sometimes my clients aren't truly sensitive to the difference between what I would call A plus copywriting and C plus copywriting. Um, There's some stylistic flourishes perhaps that happen with A plus that I think are cool, but they don't even care about them, right? Um, But at the end of the day, for you to make incremental increases in skill as an architect or as a copywriter does not come with, like those increases don't then bring a 20% jump in income, right? So like, as technicians and craftspeople, our comfort zone and our tendency is always going to be to go make these incremental gains in skill and get just a little bit better at the thing you're already comfortable with, at those hard marketable skills. But again, when I think about the skills that truly differentiate, it's going to be the stuff involved with client experience. It's going to be setting up systems so that you're communicating effectively and consistently, right? It's going to be stuff like, wow, like emotional intelligence, right? Resourcefulness. Um, When you don't hear from a prospect, do you interpret that prospect's silence as a lack of interest? Do you build a story around that and you know, dare I say it, does it hurt your feelings when someone says, no, you get rejected? Maybe even someone is rude because honestly, clients can get ugly sometimes. They're rude sometimes. They stand you up or, you know, they respond to your beautiful proposal with radio silence. And you're like, what's up with that? I thought the first conversations went well. Like, 
how you manage yourself, self-management, which is a big part of mindset too, right? But when we get into all the squishy stuff that depending on the way we're wired, depending on background, depending on skill set, a lot of us don't like the squishy stuff. We'd prefer to stick with numbers or like, shouldn't the quality of my work speak for itself? Oh, if only we truly lived in a meritocracy, right? If only, if only the best copywriters always got the best projects. Unfortunately, we don't live in that world, right? And so um, it goes back to business building. It goes back to positioning. It goes back to learning how to put together a great offer. It goes back to pricing strategy, negotiation. Um, how do you respond to pushy and aggressive people? I'm a sensitive person. And it took me a while to figure out that I can thrive in a business context, even as a sensitive person, but I just have to have certain um, protocols in place when I find myself in a relationship with someone who's getting pushy or trying to manipulate me, right? And not even like diabolical manipulation, just like someone who's like, sorry, that's too much. Like, how do you respond to a prospect when he says that's too much? As though he has any idea what the project is supposed to cost, right? If he knew how to quote the project, he would have put together the quote and sent it to you. So you have people who say ridiculous things and you can have excellent hard skills as an architect or an engineer, but still come up empty handed and be like, well, I don't, I just don't even know how to respond when a client who's a little bit ridiculous says that's too much to a proposal that you know is perfectly reasonable, right? So I think in a way, like hard skills is 20% and soft skills and mindset are 80%. And I, I don't think that's exaggerated. And with the hard skills being sort of the cost to get in and then how to succeed really leveraging on those, those soft skills. That's um, right. And, you know, you've probably heard that old, old saw, sell the sizzle, not the steak. I think there are certain professionals, engineers and architects among them, who are more prone to sell steak than sizzle. And it can be very uncomfortable, especially in the early days, to acquire some degree of showmanship that is required to sell the sizzle. And then once you've closed the deal, once you've gotten the project, to then deliver stellar work, to then do the work that you love to do really, really well and make the client happy, right? But it's still hard for some of us to stomach the thought that you may never even get the conversation, that first conversation, if you don't learn how to position yourself well, if you don't learn how to show your authority beyond just having a solid portfolio. Right, well- We can all do it. We can do it. It's just committing to learning how to sell, committing to learning how to stand out, not in a way that's ostentatious or flashier. Everyone look at me, but just, hey, 
how do you demonstrate your authority as a professional freelancer, right? Right. Well, and, and then, you know, senior managers and principals of, of firms, this is what they need to do to sell work for the firm. Mm-hmm. The, the only difference here is you're selling work for yourself mm-hmm. and having, you know, maybe possibly more of those benefits of why you want to be an independent professional freelancer yourself, you know, more freedom, more flexibility, more financial returns. You're just selling it for your benefit and, and your team's benefit versus the firm's benefits. But it seems like all of those skill sets and mindsets, they're just good for business. That's it's just right. a matter of how, do you, how you apply them. That's right. And if you've only ever been somebody else's employee and you've never had to learn any of this stuff, it can feel overwhelming at first. Suddenly overnight, you're trying to be good at bookkeeping. You're trying to be good at pricing. You're trying to be good at project management and communication and sales and negotiation. Yeah, it's enough to make your head spin, right? But it's like anything else. It's like focus on what you can control. And I I do think there are certain levers. And by lever, I mean, if you put in a little bit of effort, you get a disproportionately big output. Um, And those levers, in my experience, are positioning if you put time into positioning, you will have an inordinately good outcome, right? Packaging, and by packaging, I'm like, what are your service offerings? What are your offers tied to the client's desired outcome? So positioning, packaging, pricing, pipeline. Um, I track leads like a maniac, but I have found that that is a keystone habit just tracking leads in a very simple and rudimentary way in a spreadsheet is enough to put you ahead of a lot of other freelancers out there who are very casual, lackadaisical with how they treat their own pipeline and business development. So if, if I, you know, if there are, and there are independent professional freelancers out there who have been successful, that they have, Um, you know, figured it out the hard way, or they've worked with a coach like yourself to sort of figure out, you know, here are some things to do, here are some things to do, but, but gone through that cycle and have the skill set and have this mindset. Number one, it seems like they bring a lot to the table for firms who would hire them anyway, right? Not just the the technical chops, but, but these other sort of self-management aspects and people skills and that, that can dovetail into, to organizations. So kind of thinking things from an organizational perspective, if if there's, there's a growing um, pool of independent professional freelancers and there's some verticals and marketplaces, you know, there's more than others, but it's definitely a growing thing in the engineering and architecture space and something that will, is seemingly really increasing now uh, post COVID that if we take that as being the case, um, if I'm a firm principal leadership team, um, or an owner, what do you see on, on the other side? So as benefits of these professional services firms utilizing independent professional freelancers? I mean, there's a cost to benefit or there can be, you know, having a salaried employee has this cost per year, right? If you're including any kind of benefits, right? Any kind of 401k stuff, there's a salary, obviously, but that's one benefit is if you work with contractors, you know, your headcount goes down, you have lower payroll, lower overhead, 
So that right there can be very appealing. But on the other side, let's say you hit a busy season, you'd like to continue to say yes to new projects. You're full-time staff are maxed out, you know, you're going to cause a mutiny if you say, hey, by the way, just close two more big projects. And they're like, yeah, right. I'm out of here. Well, if you have a bench or a roster of reliable freelancers, that will give you the confidence to go sell more work, knowing that you can deliver that work without negatively affecting the experience for your clients. Um, I have found that a lot of firms, um, I, I won't say firms, because obviously I am not an architect or engineer who has worked with an architect, architect or engineering firm, but I have a lot of clients who prefer working with freelancers precisely because I press in, I self-manage, I communicate, I don't need anyone to look over my shoulder. I don't need to be managed. I will set my deadlines. I will deliver on time and on budget. So there's a certain level of sophistication and professionalism that really good freelancers bring to the table. They just require less effort. Now, uh, this is probably a bit too um, confining of a metaphor, right? But I do think that it's a cats and dogs scenario where, you know, a W-2 employee, you have all of their loyalty. So employees are more like dogs. They're just very loyal, right? Because they're in it with you. Freelancers are more like cats and they're more independent, right? They, in a way, can be a little bit more huffy. You know, they, they can be on occasion, like that independence can be, um, it, it's just a different experience having a cat and having a dog, right? And so one piece of advice I give to business owners who are newer to working with freelancers is you can't talk to them like they're employees. You can't treat them like employees. You can't lead them like employees you have to think about them as strategic partners. You have to look for the win-win. You can't be condescending. You can't talk down to them. Um, because yeah, in this, on this project, you're the boss. But one of the beautiful things about being a freelancer is if you get a client who's difficult to work with, you can say, see ya. So in a way, working with freelancers Kind of like having a cat levels the playing field, but I think in a good way where the respect has to travel both ways, right? Um, in terms of other benefits, um, if there is a project that requires very specialized type of experience that your team doesn't have, well, you can go out and recruit a freelancer who has like, I don't know if lead certification would be a good example, but like you land a project or you're, you're quoting a project and you're like, wow, we need this thing, right? Um, you're gonna be in a place to say yes to that project and really pursue that in good conscience if you get confident in your own ability 
to go build out the perfect team for that project, knowing that it's a perfect team because you just hired freelancers with the perfect skill set, right? Um, now, one other thing that I would say before we move on is I think values alignment is really important. Um, and I think freelancers are like other strategic partners in that they need to prove themselves to you. They need to earn your trust. If they're faithful with little, they'll be faithful with much. And so I'll tell business owners working with freelancers for the first time, do not give them a big mission critical project as the first project. It takes 90 days to really know what it's like to work with a freelancer. So try to de-risk, like if you're just dipping your toes into this way of working, de-risk the whole experience for yourself by making your first project with each freelancer um, a project where if the freelancer drops the ball, you could scramble, fix it, and still not lose rapport with your client, right? And so I do think the onboarding process, a really smart onboarding process with freelancers just looks a little bit different than it might with a full-time employee. Right. Well, I did want to talk to you about <clears throat> onboarding and, and some processes and systems to facilitate that. But what you just said, as far as, um, you know, in the past, I mean, or, or currently, there may be firms that are using independent professional freelancers for task work. What do you see as, you know, growing trends um, of utilizing independent professional freelancers for, you know, more meaningful management and design work? I mean, maybe after you've, you've kicked the tires and you've had a success, but do you see any trends in, in professional services or other verticals where these independent professional freelance contractors are involved higher up the value food chain? I, I, again, in terms of meaningful design and management of projects. I don't think there's a hard and fast rule. I think how much you as a principal or a managing partner, um, I think the decisions you make with each freelancer depends on the culture of your firm, the needs of your firm and that freelancer. Because some freelancers are gonna prove themselves very trustworthy. They would never try to poach a big client from you. That would feel like a massive breach of integrity for them. And so, yeah, you could move them up the free chain and feel really good about that because they have proven themselves trustworthy. They have proven their leadership ability. You know, there have been times where I have been hired on as a subcontractor, as a freelancer, and I develop enough rapport with my client. And a lot of my clients are other are, are agencies and they actually need something like a brand strategist to parachute in and lead that critical piece of the project and then pass the baton. So I have definitely earned the right through being trustworthy to have one-on-one -on -one meetings with my client's client without my client even being present. But it's like any other relationship where it takes time to build trust and I need to speak with my actions instead of with my words. And anytime I show up to a new client relationship, I'm like, I'm here to earn your trust and tell me what I need to do to earn your trust. And so what I would say to a principal or managing partner is, yeah, like what is your process for freelancers earning your trust? Because absolutely they can move up the food chain, 
but it will take the right freelancer and it will take time. And, and to some degree, I think it takes a relinquishment of control on the part of the principal, right? Because it's, it's new territory. It, it can feel risky. It can feel vulnerable. Um, and I, I do think it's okay to ask freelancers to sign independent contractor agreements where they agree to not compete. They agree to not poach clients. Um, you can even, I've been asked to say like, hey, if you wanna put this project in your portfolio, you need to say that it was in partnership with such and such agency. And I sign, I mean, I sign those contracts. I read them carefully, but I sign them because in my mind, it's all about like mutually beneficial relationships, right? And so um, you can and will find incredible freelancers who are trustworthy, even at the highest levels of your firm. Um, but they'll prove themselves trustworthy over time. Right. And, well, and that whole process of proving oneself trustworthy is just like if you had an employee that you were going to put in front of clients and be able to sort of negotiate work and, and, and not be in a meeting with them. So it's the same thought process. But in this case, it's with a skill set that we either don't have or we don't have we don't use often enough to have a full time employee with utilization rate mm -hmm. pressures and that type of thing. It's just someone like you mentioned comes in and parachutes in, but you've got that trust relationship. We just don't do it often enough or mm -hmm. we just not choosing to have that expertise because we're in this segment, but I, we know our, our, our clients need this. And so we bring in this talent from time to time. Um, it, mm -hmm. If a firm or managing partner, leadership team, if they were interested in, okay, we want to be more open for business. We, we want to start exploring this independent professional freelancer world. How, what, what do they need to do or what do they need to think about in order to sort of attract, vet, and, and get their internal teams to buy in to the use of internal professional freelancers? Mm -hmm. I think... Um when I think about the teams that I like working with, I like working with teams that have well-defined processes. Um, because if I, as a freelancer, come into a messy situation, it's hard for me to even know how to deliver excellent results. So does your firm have really well-defined processes that will make it obvious where a freelancer is going to slot in. And that I know can be a challenge like standard operating procedures, SOPs, they're, they're a challenge for every type of organization, right? But I do think it helps if you can say, here's how we do things around here. Are you okay with that? And really great freelancers will be like, yes, I'm okay with that. Here's how I do things. Can we figure out how to make those two different processes jive? Now I'll, I'll have um, clients who are like, well, hey, we know you use ClickUp for project management. We use Asana. Are you okay using Asana? And I'll be like, sure. So I think when you think about how do you integrate a freelancer with your existing team, it's like onboarding anybody else which is, well, do you have a list of the tools that you use and the competencies that you require? Do you have your tech stack? 
right? Like, hey, you know, you need to be comfortable on these platforms. You need to be using Slack or we use Zoom for video conferencing or whatever, right? Um, so there's that. There's just getting some assurance from these people that they can get up to speed with your processes and your tools and your tech stack very, very quickly. I, but then I think um, talking about communication styles, right? Like some people prefer to not use email. And then there are people who are like, no, well, let's just communicate your project management software. Um, I have some, I've hired freelancers and I've just had to say, please don't text me. Like we all think that we're all working from the same bundle of preferences and we're not. So it's like integrating any new team member, whether they're full-time or freelance, what, is your, what are your communication preferences? What is your communication style? Um, is there anything else I should know about how you work, right? Some people are night owls. Some people tend to work in the morning. If your expectation is that all of your freelancers will have like a standard like nine to five or eight to five work day, um, well, honestly, legally, you can't, you can't tell a contractor what hours they can work. But if you have expectations, then you need to state those expectations and give the freelancer a chance to say, yes, I agree to adhere to those expectations or I don't. And so I found it really helpful when I have a client. And again, Peter, you're going to say, well, wait, this is true for firms too, right? Any, anybody who's doing service work, anybody who has clients, this is a best practice. You can't expect me to dot, dot, dot. I expect you to dot, 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 right? Just vocalizing expectations is so helpful. And maybe the single best determining factor for how you expect that collaboration to go. Right. And, and to, I mean, to your point, I mean, that was like a major aha, you know, at, at, you know as we were working through COVID last year that, you know, the things that really COVID exposed in a lot of firms, a lot of organizations, but certainly in, in our industry, is the need to document and improve processes and systems and, and how we work and workflow and, and have more modern and effective onboarding for integration. But the aha, I guess, was when we can do that well for our current employees um, who from moving forward are going to be more remote, um, more hybrid. We're going to need all of that to be successful in business with sort of traditional employees, we'll call them. But once you do that, you're already prepared to succeed by using professional um, independent freelancers. So you've already, 100%. so it's a two for one. Um, and if we're getting more comfortable with the hybrid and remote workforce, all the better. We're not even having any cultural norms, uh, cultural problems, because we're kind of working through that cultural evolution right now. That's, I could not agree more. I think the organizations that have done the hard work of designing and documenting processes, providing really tight training for their full-time team members, they're, they're positioned very well to work with freelancers and freelancers will be like, ah, oh, you'll hear these sighs of relief. They're like, ah, oh, we all like walking into orderly places. 
we all like joining up with the system that just makes sense, right? And I, that's because I believe that people actually want to do really good, impactful, satisfying work. And so if it's clear to me from the outset that if I agree to freelance with your firm, then I'm going to be doing really great work with you. Well, you're much more attractive. And honestly, I am willing to offer preferential rates to clients who make it easy for me to do my best work. So if in a way you're rolling out the red carpet for freelancers by doing what I would consider best practices for any business anyway, um, you're gonna work. You're gonna work with better freelancers, attract better freelancers. You may even get preferential rates because they're like awesome. Like, I can collaborate with cool people, do good work, and there aren't gonna be these gotchas, these gremlins where halfway through the project, I figure out we were following a broken process the whole time, and now my client expects me to clean up the mess they made with broken process. That's not fun. What, what what advice would you have for <clears throat> if there are organizations who say leadership wants to start exploring the use of independent professional freelancers, um, but management says, I'm too busy to take anything else on. This sounds like a burden for me. It's one more thing to manage, even though we've talked about it. it you know, that might actually be easier to manage, but, you know, or on the flip side, there's managers who are saying, I'm overtaxed. I have, there's a skill set that's out there that we can utilize to sort of improve how we do things. We can add new skill sets, you know, all of the benefits and leader in leadership now says, yeah, but we don't do that. Mm-hmm. What, what advice do you have for, right? You know, both of those scenarios based on your experience? Well, if, the, if what they're already doing is working, I would understand their reluctance. It's like, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? But this trend isn't going away. And I think, honestly, a lot of the younger up-and-coming engineers and architects are going to want to have more lifestyle flexibility. Not only that, like the trend we saw with like a distributed teams, fully remote teams, like what happened in 2020? Well, even when, you know, we have like herd immunity or whatever, things just aren't going to snap back to the way they were before. There was a 22% increase year over year, 2020 over 2019 in the number of freelancers. It was 59 million, 59 million people in the United States freelanced in some capacity in 2020. And what happens is people get a taste of not having a commute, not having a manager hover by their desk, right? Um, Not having to pack a lunch because they can just go into the kitchen, not having to rush home to let the dog out during lunch, right? Like the, the freedom and flexibility that comes with working at home, a lot more people got a taste of that and they're not gonna wanna go back And so I think firm principals, managers have to be prepared to say, well, what are, what concessions are we willing to make? How are we willing to change in, in order to work with top tier talent? Because what happens when 
you're like, wow, what an incredible portfolio. We really want to hire her. And she's like, yeah, I'd love to work with you too, but I'm not moving to Phoenix because my husband has a great job here or because no, this is where all my friends are or because no, I'm really involved in my church and I'm not going to move. Like, like as the way we work has shifted, well, so has what even really great companies need to be willing to do in order to attract and retain top talent. So that that's what my answer would be is like, hey, the ship has sailed. Like work is changing. And thankfully, professionalism has changed too. To be a full-time freelancer doesn't mean that you can't hack it in a W-2 position. It may mean that you would prefer to make 20 to 50 to 200% more and have freedom, flexibility, autonomy, and get to work with cool people on cool projects, right? So there have been a lot of really big shifts. And I would just say to a principal, okay, are you making the decisions now business-wise, business strategy-wise, that are going to position you well 10 years from now. Because more people, not less people, are going to want to have more control over lifestyle 10 years from now. So better to go ahead and bite the bullet and start learning how to work well with independent professionals now than be hurrying to catch up 10 years from now. Right. So it's really get laughed out of the room. They might be like, you don't know what you're talking about. You have two English degrees. Right. But I'd say, well, this is just what I'm seeing. Well, I mean, and and I think that's a sort of even again to kind of tie into, you know, if you want to retain your employees, I mean, Microsoft just had the, the work trend index study that they, you know, combined with their LinkedIn assets. And I think that it was 41 or 42% of their surveyed employees are looking to leave their organizations in the next six months to a year, depending on how they respond to retaining my ability to work remotely. Wow. And that's a major factor um, that, you know, from a leadership perspective to be aware of that and then have the business strategy that will account for that. But again, then opens the door for the use of independent professional freelancers as a benefit to being able to really retain and work well with your traditional employees who want some sort of a hybrid or remote work situation. So I have two virtual assistants in the Philippines and they are awesome. College degrees, really rich and valuable work experience, speak better English than half the people we know in East Tennessee. The reason I even bring that up is to say, you'll have architecture and engineering firms that really get on board this train they they buy into this cultural shift there will be winners and losers right and they're like you know what we're going to be among the winners and suddenly they realize well why couldn't i hire people around the world why does it even have to stop with having a hybrid workforce or distributed team suddenly I could hire not just the best 
you know, the best candidate that happens to be in the pool of people who respond to my job posting, I could hire the best of the best from around the world. So when you think about the opportunities that this cultural, that this big shift will bring to the people who believe into the, you know, who, who believe in the shift and buy into the new paradigm, I, ju I just think the benefits outweigh the drawbacks. And it can be painful to change. It can be painful to disrupt um, established workflows. But yeah, I'm excited about it. And I personally have benefited from hiring amazing people around the world. And um, sometimes the economics really work out in my favor. Right. Well, I, I mean, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and sharing, again, from both perspectives, in the, from an individual perspective and then from a, an organization wanting to be able to leverage the power of independent professional freelancers. But as, as we look to close, is there anything else that you'd like to share or add that we haven't talked about that would be, you know, would help leaders, you know, success more, you know, have success more as uh, or with the use of independent professional freelancers? Just be open to it. It's like so many things. Try it and see if you like it. And if you don't like it, that doesn't mean you have to keep doing it. But I see this as a, a trend that is going to become the norm. And the sooner we all get on board, it's sort of like the early adopters usually have the best returns, right? Certainly been true of Tesla stock, right? So it's like, okay, well, how do I take that and say, well, here's this trend with independent freelance professionals, right? Instead of just viewing the threats, say, what opportunities could this create for us? One we didn't even cover is sometimes independent professionals will get project leads that they can't handle on their own. Your freelancers can actually be an informal sales team for you. So the value flows both ways. As a freelancer, I have taken jobs to agencies and said, I just want to do this piece. Will you do the engineering part? So that's just one small example of there are many, many benefits. There are many, many opportunities if you're open-minded and you, you don't have to just leap without looking. You can get your toes wet, see if you like it, and then go from there. Great. Um, well, thank you for that. How, how can folks, um, listeners, um, get in touch with you to learn a little bit about more, uh, learn more about what you do and, and your services at uh, Belernum? Sure. So find me on LinkedIn, Austin L. Church. Um, you can find me on my personal website, which is where I talk about a lot of the coaching stuff, austinlchurch.com. Belernum is where I talk about a bunch of brand strategy stuff. So that's B-A-L-E-R-N-U-M.com. And um, if you fill out a contact form or send me a message, I'll respond. Well, excellent. Well, I want to thank you for another great conversation with you. Um, I really appreciate 
all the times that we get together um, and talk about this. And but I want to thank you for coming on the podcast and, and sharing your your insights. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, great. Well, take care. Well, that's a wrap. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to and rate this podcast on iTunes or whatever platform you listen to the show from. There are links on my website and in the show notes to do so. And please also share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. It really helps to continue to get us established, and I truly appreciate that. And it also helps to get the word out to others so that together we can collectively grow and positively impact the lives of others, both inside and beyond our organizations. Thanks for joining us on today's episode of AEC Leadership Today. If you want to stay relevant and effective and take your growth and prosperity to new levels, it's time to take action. To learn more about how Pete can help take you and your firm to the next level, visit www.actionsprove.com. That's www.actionsprove.com. See you next time on the AEC Leadership Today podcast.